correctly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. www.d20radio.com Hello and welcome to Opcast, Arms Around the Trinity Continuum. Our podcast is in-depth reviews covering everything from the first edition to the newest story path edition of the books published for the Trinity Continuum, including Aeon, Aberrant, Adventure, and more. I'm one of your hosts, Chaz, and I have with me as always... I'm Scott. I'm Josh. Today, we'd like to shout out another member of the D20 Radio Network, this week, our shout-out goes to Court Games. On their show, they covered Legend of the Five Rings, including all the new releases for the 5th edition RPG from Fantasy Flight Games, along with discussions about their community impact, speculation on future releases, and recommendations to improve your L5R experience. They also produced Fortune and Strife, a teaching-focused L5R AP that blends audio drama and the rules to show you how the game works at the table. Go check out Court Games, and all the other great shows of the D20 Radio Network at d20radio.com. So today, uh, we're covering Prometheus Unbound, which is the essentially the Psy Order's player's guide for Trinity Continuum Aeon. So I have to say up front, I edited this book. So if I say nice things about it, it's not necessarily because I was involved with its creation but I'm sure that doesn't hurt it. Yeah, this, this was the book that, that Josh would tease us about occasionally because we were anticipating it so much and he got to read it before any of us. So I really liked this book quite a lot. I think they did a absolutely phenomenal job with it. It gives you all sorts of really in-depth detail, options, story ideas, and just flavor for all of the Psy Orders, and it's really concentrated on doing that job. In first edition, each of the Psy Orders got their own book paired with the region that they were most associated with, and I think that this, this version of it is up to par with any of those in terms of the level of detail and usefulness that you get out of any of the Psy Orders. So I think it's a worthy successor to the old books, at least in its, its function, and I really like what they've done with it. Jazz, what are your overall thoughts of the book? I mean, I agree with Scott. This is an excellent book. The Psy Orders are really cool. And one of the cool things that I think draws people into Aeon, there was a very conscious effort in those days at White Wolf to make factions that people would feel faction loyalty to. It was one of the things that they saw not just bring players into Vampire, but kept players loyal in Vampire is that you had your clan uh, and that was like an identity factor for you as a gamer. And they designed the Psy Orders with the same intentions. I think that this presentation of them takes all of the, the strong aspects that would draw you into the Psy Orders and, and puts them front and center, uh, as well as giving some new options and storyteller advice for playing with each order. So overall, I, I think this is an excellent book. I was thrilled reading it through. So we can kind of get into the details as we go. What about you, Josh? 
I, I think this book is fantastic. If you were to have two books for Aeon that would have everything that I think you need to run the game, it would be the core Aeon book, Terra Firma, and this. And you would have absolutely everything in my mind that you absolutely have to have. Distant Worlds is great. Under Alien Skies is great. But if you're not playing that type of sci-fi where you're going off world, you don't necessarily need those two as much. So I'm just going to say that I think this book is an essential read if you are playing Aeon, regardless of where you play in and what genre of sci-fi you play, because I think there's something applicable for every genre that you could possibly play in using this book. Before we get into the content, there are two notes that I want to, to give to our listeners. Uh, the first one is that this book, if you read through it, you can clearly tell that it was written as a companion to a book that hasn't come out yet, which is Mission Statements. There are a lot of references to that book, so you should, should be aware of that. And the second major note that you really need to pay attention to is that this book is not shy about setting secrets. They are yeah. everywhere in this book. So if you want to keep yourself unspoiled, it's going to be really hard to do that reading this book because they show up in places you don't expect them to. Like yeah. in talking about orders that aren't involved with certain big secrets directly, they talk about it indirectly and it is something to note. So to that, I think we are going to have to talk about some of those setting spoilers. So we'll do that in this episode. We won't get into all of the details the way we did in our setting secrets uh, episode, but spoiler warning here, big mm -hmm. flash of red spoiler warning in audio format that I don't know how we can tell it's read. <laughs> the intro fiction is called Interlocking Pieces and highlights the strengths of the orders working together to go after an aberrant. It, it's kind of has a cool framing narrative where there is an Aeon investigator who's like, okay, tell me what went down here. And it definitely stretches plausibility, but in ways that are fun with a, a with that side perspective. What did you guys think about the opening fiction? I think it was great. Like you're, you're exactly right. It does show everybody's strengths. I love the fact that there's kind of the subtle thread of like, oh, and the ISRA kind of threaded this all together to make sure that everyone was here at the right time, which is exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And yeah, it, it definitely, it, I love how it builds on itself with each new scion that comes into play. It, it adds a, an aspect of the story as well as showing off that scion and their strength and the strength of the order. So I think it's a very well-constructed piece of fiction shows a group working together in a way that you could see in a game and I feel like we rarely see that in fiction for RPGs we often see fiction focused on one or two characters and you're like okay but that doesn't tell me how I would play this game with a group or when it does sometimes it doesn't do that very well this does an excellent job of saying here's a framing device for an RPG story and I think that's super valuable. So as a piece of fiction, it doesn't just act as a piece of fiction, it acts as an example of play. And I think that is very, very cool. The intro presents the book and I thought gave a, a couple of important reminders as takeaways from this introduction. First is that almost any aptitude can appear in any Psy order. And that is definitely carried through in the pre presentation of the Psy orders throughout the books. That's an important thing to remember is that while each order is associated with a particular uh, 
aptitude. They mix and match. They swap favors to, to get members with other aptitudes because psi powers are better together. And that, that's something that when you're building characters and thinking about the psi orders, you need to remember. Another point is kind of doubling down on psi orders as an organizing principle for a campaign. It's something that's mentioned in the core book, but that is kind of the core pillar of this book that if you want to run a psi order campaign, this gives you the, the fuller details that would really help you do that for each psi order. And finally, a reminder that the Psy Orders are connected to particular regions or governments. So where each region in the setting kind of leans into a particular subgenre of sci-fi, the connection between the Psy Order and that region also helps you lean that direction. So just uh, useful pointers in the intro, uh, and I wanted to point those out before we jump in. Yep, that all that all tracks. I think you did get a good summation of it, and it's a very good intro. It does what it needs to do. So now we're going to get into the psi orders, and we're kind of going to round robin uh, each presenting one of the psi orders. We're not going to do a full, this is who the psi order is, uh, but we're going to talk about what this book brings to the psi order. So if you want a reminder on what's up with each of the psi orders, go check out our setting episode for Aeon, where we do kind of set the baseline for each, and we'll be talking about how this book expands on that. The Escalapian Order was one that uh, they shifted the focus from kind of the, the medical services to the betterment of humanity and rescue operations in, in this book, uh, really making them a, a more exciting order to be a part of. I know they started that transition in the switch from their first edition presentation to their second edition presentation, but they further shifted that in this book, highlighting their ongoing operations where they're working in the aberrant ravaged ruins of France to save people or working almost undercover in the FSA to provide medical services to the underclass of non-citizens, the willingness to push the bounds with anyone who's going to push back on providing emergency relief and healthcare, making them a very active order in their drive to heal and protect humanity. They talk about their operations, the aberrant war-torn world orbiting Alpha Centauri, and how the a chapter of the order was essentially cut off from the rest of them out there while the Upeo Wamacho were, were in exile, and how that has changed the focus of the order. So I thought it did a really good job making the order an active player in, in the setting uh, and making them uh, really interesting potential for campaigns. Uh, they talk about presenting campaigns like procedural medical dramas, uh, but how you do that in a way that doesn't just always boil down to rolling for medicine, looking at what interesting challenges you have, having long-term stories with personal development or larger medical challenges like a plague or, or some alien world ecosystem collapse, that not every challenge in that should be medical. Sometimes it's about getting the equipment. Sometimes it's about fixing things. Sometimes it's about dealing with people and how to bring in other aptitude scions to these challenges to make sure that vitakinesis isn't the solution for every medical problem. So it, I thought it gave a lot of really good campaign advice for, for setting that, that kind of a story. Overall, it moved the Escalapians into an order that I was not very excited about, that were kind of a, a 
interesting part of the setting, but not something that I was drawn to, to me saying, oh yeah, I see how you could do a bunch of cool things with this order. Thoughts about the Escalapian chapter? Hero doctors are cool. Like they really are. Like I really love the the kind of like superhero. They're they are they are they are kind of presented as super heroic in this in this chapter because not only are they like personally powerful, they have the power of healing, they have the power of enhancing them themselves and others to do great and heroic things. They're also ethically heroic. They are probably like if you want to point to where are the goodest guys in this setting, you point to the Asclepians because they are the ones with their hands up to their elbows in the gore of humanity trying to help. And I think you're right. This chapter did a really good job of showing how you can make a interesting, heroic, and fun campaign out of this order. Yeah. I think the one thing that I want to highlight for 1E fans is they did a very good job of removing the fight between the two sides of the order. There used to be this, this antagonistic relationship between the headquarters in Port-au-Prince and the headquarters in, in Switzerland that no longer exists. They are now fairly, there's still some tension there because they have differing ways of going about healing, but not in a way that they are openly antagonistic to each other and fighting one another. It's just a philosophical difference that they are kind of allowing to exist because it helps the order rather than is ultimately going to break the order apart and harm it. And I like that so much because it makes me be able to play a character that sees themselves as a bit of a faith healer because they are, because mm -hmm. psionics are what similar to what you would have from that perspective. And it fit with the rest of the order in a way that you can still be an action medic going around the world and saving people. You just view what you do as something that's a little bit more spiritual than otherwise. That gives me so much space to work with that I really appreciate it. So I wanted to call that out specifically. Here's one final thing. Uh, I really liked the personal touch. Every order includes a section on people. And I thought the people section here was really good. Uh, I liked the uh, deeper description of Matthew Zeidler, the proxy, uh, talking about him being a personal, having a personal touch and being a hardworking doctor, and also having the, the mug that says world's worst patient on it because he won't <laughs> stop and take care of himself. And then just the character list gave a lot of thumbnails to let you glimpse what order, order life is like and giving you a, a bunch of story hooks. So very strong opening chapter. Yeah, and that brings us into chapter two, which is about the Chitrabanu. And if you're not ready for this chapter, I'm not surprised because it, it dumps you right into the setting secrets and kind of expects you to know what's going on. So if you are a player and you want to play a, a Chitrabanu member, you've got to be willing to know some setting secrets to read this chapter and dive into it to give you an idea of what your character would be like. Unless you're playing one of the Chitrabanu who, who escaped the purge somehow, you are going to be part of this new Chitrabanu that still exists. Sorry, spoiler, they are still around. They are slowly regrowing from the purge, hiding in the Venezuelan blight area with the Norsa as their support organization. So the Norsa and Del Fuego in particular have hidden the Chitrabanu and Dr. Barano 
in that area and they are slowly working to one, cleanse the blight and two, rebuild in a way that allows them to move away from what was the problem beforehand. And again, spoiler, SK Barano was taken over by a Doyen for a significant period of time before the purge. And it is probably the Doyen's fault on both sides that the purge occurred. So now that you know that, if you are still listening, and it frames everything else that happens in this chapter where everything is cellular for the organization. Interactions with Barano happen through these cellular organizations. So usually not everybody is in one place at the same time and bits and pieces of the organization are spread as safely as possible throughout the world. And a few maybe off world that seems to be a little bit less likely that there are Chibs off world, but I don't know if that's an okay way of calling the Chichibano, but a lot of people call them that. One thing that is really important is to know who the allies and the adversaries or the enemies of the order are. The allies for this particular order are the Norsa in particular, because Del Fuego is personally feels bad because he knows that the purge should not have happened and is doing everything he can to protect and support Barano and the rest of the Chitrabanu in rebuilding. The Aeon Trinity are aware, one of the Doyen, which I think this is a revelation that we find that they are aware of them. I don't know if we got that in the core book, but we may have. Knowing anyway that the Aeon Trinity is aware of the existence of the Order and is slowly trying to also help them is really good to know. It allows you to make an Aeon Trinity game and have the, a Chitrabanu character fit into that group. There is also this public opinion campaign that is slowly being built to change the narrative around the purge that occurred. And I'm not sure how successful that's going to be with the fact that two of the proxies, Larson and Cassell, really still believe the purge was absolutely necessary. There's a hint later on in the Orgatech chapter that maybe there's a reason Castle thinks that that purge was really necessary. I will leave that to that chapter for us to discuss. But the Doyen are absolutely still the main adversary for this order because without them, they could go public. But right now they're hiding from the Doyen and, and everything else is kind of secondary um, to that. This really focuses on the change in SK Barano and how she has changed her personality, not just because she no longer has a doyen possessing her, but because she has dealt with an extreme level of trauma for years. And she's come to the conclusion that some of what she did before wasn't working. And now she has to reevaluate how she interacts with people and what she does with the order around her. So the chapter spends a good deal of time helping you understand her and her role in the order as a whole. I really like the paths that they provide in this, in each of the chapters, but particularly in this chapter, I feel like they are interesting. The Doyen Hunter path is something that I would create an entire campaign based around, and I would allow other orders to take that particular society path if I was creating a group of Doyen Hunters, which is just a super cool idea for a plot. And I think this whole book does that it constantly creates story hooks in a way that make me go, I want to play this. And then I read the next chapter and I go, I want to play this. 
And I think it's fantastic. So I will leave the floor open for any other thoughts on this particular chapter. While there is the focus on the adversary of the Doyen, they do also open it up for other kinds of campaigns, the campaign advice. And I thought that was really well done. They gave a a list of possible types of mission objectives uh, and how maybe the Chichibanu could just be like investigating weird stuff happening around the galaxy, almost like Aeon of old. And I I thought it was a really good way of just opening up the possibilities so that Yes, we get a lot of the, the meta plot and fighting against the Doyen, but it's not the only thing that you can do with the Chitrabano. So really spot on. Yeah, I agree. They still retain the heart of the order, which is a research institution. They are still, that's still almost primarily how they function because, but their focus of research is very much uh, constrained to the Doyen, aberrants, weird things uh, around the galaxy that not so much research in and of themselves, but in how they can be turned to the greater agenda. So yeah, I, I agree. I think that the, the Chitravanu are fascinating. The way that they've reformed them and crystallized them is really great. And using this book, you could run one hell of a Chitravanu campaign. Like yeah. I think like that's the probably one of the most intriguing order-specific campaigns that this book provides you because it, you're injected straight into the heart of the plot, of the meta plot of the game. Like the biggest antagonists, the, the, the deepest mysteries, this order deals with those. Next we have ISRA. Scott, yes. what can you tell us about chapter three? I adore the ISRA in all of its incarnations and all of its forms. The ISRA is, of course, the uh, Interplanetary School for Research and Advancement, uh, the Clairsentient Order. And the way they present them here is they are one of the most like instrumental and far-reaching orders while almost having no structure to it at all. It really represents a very well done flat hierarchy of an order that does not have a strong central leadership. And yet, because it has this very powerful ability to sense through time and space, their capacity to achieve their agenda is amazing. And they do so without the need for having a hierarchy. Uh, And I really like that quite a bit about this order. Uh, and the way they just present it here. Everything is presented in terms of a group of like-minded individuals coming together through the guidance of their proxy and their own personal insight to achieve goals that happen to be some of the most vital and wide-spanning goals of the setting because they all are hooked into the noetic totality telling them, here's how things need to go. And the way they describe that, there's a loose organization with groupings of individuals focusing on projects here and there with a lot of interplay between them is really well done. It gives you this idea of how you can live in essentially an anarchist collective that spans human space and still get a lot of really good things done. I I really enjoy that. They have a really excellent new mechanic in this chapter called Akir or Dikir. I'm not going to even pretend that I can pronounce that correctly, which is a basically a mechanic that kind of sits alongside the clairsentient rules of general prophecy, peering into the noetic totality uh, to gain insight into the past, the present, and the future. And it's a very simple system that allows you to interact with your story guide to be that kind of 
weird seer that can help guide the plot. It's it's a really cool system and I'm really glad that they included it. It talks a great deal about Otha Herzog and his role, how he is a leader without leading much. He, they describe him as a big center of gravity around which the orbits of the planets, that is the, the Psi Order, uh, happen. His general vision and his general agenda just seems to shape everything because he knows exactly what to say at the exact right time. It's a very well done way of describing someone who leads without force, leads without coercion, and just allows his abilities to manifest themselves throughout the order in a very subtle and non-coercive way. There is a good deal about the mundane aspects of the order. It goes into like ISRA campuses, the services they provide to their members and to humanities as a whole, very much organized around like mutual aid principles. Like I said, it's a huge disorganized flat hierarchy anarchist collective that spans human space and it's really great. There is big projects that they're working on dealing with the listeners who are a new alien race described in in both distant worlds and other alien suns who are clairsentient. Definitely something to, to look into if you're interested in aliens. The Neoetic Ethics Council, which is something that ties into a lot of something that's probably going to be in mission statements because that gets mentioned a couple of times. It's essentially a a plan to manage the ethical use of psionic powers, the interstellar cartography initiative, which is mapping the galaxy. And it's the tied to the jump ship program. And probably my favorite world without walls, which is a radical transparency, anti-secrecy faction that just doesn't really care about like secrecy and laws regarding confidentiality. They see a problem, they expose it. Very much a, a wild journalism style of group. I love the, the crap out of that. It talks about their allies within the orders. There's not a lot of antagonism for the ISRA because they are so subtle and not doesn't don't have a lot of force behind them. But there are definitely nations and organizations that do not uh, like them. Once again, they have a good list of the NPCs that are uh, big in the order. Like Chaz says, the people are very instrumental. And then they give some really good advice for running ISRA campaigns, which are great. Uh, the paths that are mentioned here, the jump ship pilot and the, especially the non-clairsentient ISRN, which I found a great deal, very funny of like, how do you, as a non-clairsentient deal with people whose minds work almost completely differently from most other people because they are cooked into uh, the, the, the fabric of reality in a way that's totally different from anybody else. I find that funny. I particularly appreciated the new edge hyperperceptive neurotype, which basically talks about like, hey, these people have always existed, but it's a very cool way of saying like, this type of neurotype has always existed but now it has its place to really shine because it it reacts to clairsentient in a very good way. It kind of it it represents the idea that people who are neurodivergent aren't broken or wrong. It is society that is failing to adapt to them, which is a perspective that I, I particularly really appreciate. And it copes off with another excellent bit of mechanics, which is essentially a clairsentient fighting style, which. I love the crap out of it. That's so cool. There is so much clear influence from my favorite sci-fi novel, which is Dune in this. It starts off with a, a quote from Dune, and you can see the threads of that style of prophecy and clairsentience and seeing the future threaded throughout the ISRA. And I greatly appreciate that influence. What do you guys think about the ISRA as presented here in this book? 
it has those threads of Dune, but it's hopeful. Unlike mm. Dune, which is really doom and gloom, it's like, hey, what could we do with this if we had a hopeful future in our sights? And there's a lot of a sense of, hey, we can change the world for the better. And if we do it, it like it is not impossible for us to take this action. And I love that opportunity instead of saying, oh, if you mess with the future, you're going to destroy the world. Instead, they're saying you can mess with the future and make it better. And I'm like, thank you. I believe that that is true. And I like to see that this game takes that attack. I also like the use of the various alien groups. I said this, you didn't have to have any of the alien groups to run this, but I like the chin and I like the listeners and I like all of those story hooks. So if you want to play with those story hooks, you can use this order and have those connections. And I think that's a really good hook to place a story on, an entire campaign on. So those are my thoughts. All right, so that brings us to chapter four, the legions. Um, first off, the legions are a UN military force. Uh, you've got to just accept that the UN has gained enough power in this future in both Aberrant and in Aeon to be almost a world government and being allowed to have a standing military, which is something that is not allowed in the real world now, but there is an article of the UN uh, declaration that would allow them to have a standing force. So it's not an impossibility. It's just a highly unlikely thing with the way the UN is. I say that I'll just say they are a military organization that is everywhere, both on earth and off the planet. You've got the different divisions of the order in all of these different places, and all of them are interesting, and all of them let you play specific parts of the sci-fi genre that you want to play, depending on where you want to be a space marine or a ground marine, as it were. You can play that with this particular order. But I want to dive into one specific element, and that is Larson, the, uh, the proxy of this particular order, is presented as having a, a poly relationship in a way that is really, really well written. And it makes me like her a little bit more because she's kind of been unlikable in the past. And you can see how this is written in a way that makes her an understandable figure. And I really like that. I really like having all of the proxies be someone you could go, I, tr I could trust this person potentially. I think something that they've done with Larson is that in the past, she's always been presented as the general. Right. And here we get Larson the person. We learn about her background and, and how she saw military service as her path out of poverty in Europe in the post-Aberrant War era and how that led her uh, to where she is as a general of the legions. So it definitely humanizes her in a way that we haven't seen in the, the past presentation. Yep, exactly. And I think that's really key to understanding that all soldiers are real people too. And I, I think in RPGs in particular, people tend to see soldiers and fighters as a really particular type of person who don't have a lot of personality or individuality. As a person that was in the military, I can tell you the average soldier is nothing like what you expect them to be. They are probably barely put together as a human being, and that is okay. And you <laughs> can play a soldier like that in the Legion and still be very good at your job but be a very human person. And I think that's a good thing to remember is that the legions are made up of people 
for their you know positive and negative traits and those give you a lot of story hooks to play uh, a legion game on so there's a lot more about the particular like places you can go and play as uh, a member of this legion or a member of the legions but I think I'll leave it there so we can kind of push forward. But Scott, what are your thoughts? I mean, I love, I've always loved the legions. I think military sci-fi is, is low key. One of the, the types of sci-fi that I really enjoy. It's not my favorite, but I certainly uh, see its benefit and its enjoyment. I, I want to mirror what you just said about the options that you have. They present a lot of really good options for playing a legionnaire in all sorts of contexts. It's not just military. It's not just fighting. There are so many different contexts that you can play a legionnaire. And one very interesting fact about Larson that I'll end and hear this off with is that she has a daughter. I think she is the only proxy that has a child um, that has been described in, in the canon. But and that is very interesting. It's like a it's a one line thing, but the implications of that are very interesting. And I hope they might go into that a little bit more in the future. I guess the, the last thought that I have is that they have an order society path for former legionnaires, those who have retired, where they're they're still considered part of the legion as a, a veteran, but they're not active service. And I think that opens up a really good way to bring a legion character into a mixed game or a, a non-military sci-fi game for that player who wants that connection. So I thought that was a, a cool player option. 100% agreed. Next up is the ministry, and this is one that in the past we said probably needed a little bit of attention to make them not the baddies, and I think this chapter gets them halfway to that position. I don't think there was any way to, to get them all the way to being straight up heroic because of their place in the world. They are a department of a national government that has a kind of imperial ambitions over the wider region and is an authoritarian, albeit a, a theoretically benevolent one. And so they do a couple of things in this chapter to address that. First uh, is the culture of the, the Psi Order itself, talking about how they work um, internally. Second is setting them up as almost a rival power with the rest of the government, where they compete for resources, where they have overlapping authority, but also a certain amount of in independence from the government. And I think that puts them in an interesting place. And then when they get into the characters, especially, they talk about how some of the characters are not comfortable with the nationalist objective of the Psy Order. And they, they want to make like different national franchises to have the Psy Order support other places that are not under China's dominion. They talk about all of the projects that the order is working on, like making false brains to practice telepathy, and then using that to create clone brains that they could potentially use to replace bad politicians, about how they're prodding the cracks uh, in China's social order, which was designed by ANOVA during the Aberrant Era. But now, because of the unpredicted things, like the influence of Aberrant cults, like the presence of psi-powered people, that order's breaking down in places and they're trying to like poke it and figure out why and how. There's the, the project called the Echo Archive, which is the potential to tap into to humanity's latent collective telepathy. Whether or not that's really a thing, they're not, they don't present, but like it's a cool idea. And so I think they did a, a really good job of making them interesting and making them not just a uh, a part of the Chinese government, especially in the campaign 
options they they say don't necessarily focus on their them being part of China like there's all of these other things you can do with them I think the the one thing that I, I really want to highlight though is with the proxy a lot of what the order does is driven by the proxy and she might the order might be better off without her I I, I want to say because she has some very strong opinions she was behind the the Chichibanu purge she is totally opposed to aberrance which isn't necessarily a bad thing but also means she's not open to the novas that are out there she is very wrapped up with the, the Chinese government and so I, I think it'd be interesting to see what happens to this order if if she did let go of the reins or pass away or got pulled too deep into her quantum flux disease or, or something like that. What do you guys think about the presentation of the ministry here? I think you're right in that it gets halfway to where we said that it, it really needed to go because there's plenty of stuff in here that is very interesting, like particularly the section on like re-education camps and how the ministry like basically... <sighs> removed that from the Chinese government because it hurt them too much and it was such, such an evil thing they couldn't tolerate it, it anymore and then there were sections that I read with slack-jawed horror like the clone brains I like I was like this was supposed to humanize them no it's not so there's it there's a and there's a lot of that there's a lot of like oh I see where this is making them heroic and cool and then there's I could do without this <laughs> There's a lot of that in this section. It's very well written. It's very interesting. It does a lot of work towards making them something that, that I think would be an interesting game to play as a heroic concept. If you wanted to step away from the, the direction of hopeful and uplifting and heroic that the Trinity Continuum version of Aeon has gone and play a more darker conspiratorial version of the game, the Ministry is a great fit for that. But yeah, it's there's... A lot of dissonance in this. Yeah, it, it is written as if everything was wonderful. But if you read it with a critical eye, you do kind of feel like that's not great, but at least you're trying. So mm -hmm. I get where you're going with this. And it makes the ministry playable if your character is willing to kind of face head on some of those hypocrisies within the order itself. And they give space for there are people that are headbutting against the hypocrisies of the order. And the only issue I don't really get, and I haven't understood from the beginning is how they can have an open system where everyone knows everything that's happening within the order because they're all telepaths, right? But then there are these secret groups within the organization at the same time. And I don't quite understand how that works, but that's something for probably a player group to figure out the, uh, the space on the lefts and rights. The only other thing that I would mention is that it's a bit of a disappointment because it, I was really hoping we would find more about Proxy Belu's wife because that's something they've mentioned in the core book and I was really hoping we would get more because that's a pretty important person to help us understand the proxy more and we don't really get more information about that woman in this book. So I was kind of hoping to get some of that. Yeah, agreed. So next we have the Norsa, another old favorite, and they are kind of, they're very similar to the ministry in that they are nationalistic, although they're more focused on a continent than they are a specific nation. They're secretive. They are very deeply tied to espionage and political dealings, but they manage to do that in a way that is almost entirely heroic in its, its presentation and in, in 
its acceptance. I, I really, really like them. I love the Norse. I think I'd mentioned before that I, I like certain aspects of the first edition that they have gone that they have changed. But the presentation here is fantastic. They're also they're very cell based. They're kind of organized like a crime family without a lot of the crime is their kind of overall organization. It is another order that is very, very based around its proxy. The, the Del Fuego is a constant presence in this chapter, and it shows how he is shaping and using this order for his agenda. It is an agenda that is very positive, very forward thinking, but that is one that he and his order are willing to go to pretty much any lengths to succeed and apply. It would be a lot more morally gray if they had less positive ambitions, but it is still a morally gray order that I think does the does what the ministry was going for a lot better because they do kind of keep to a core ethic and a core agenda that is overall positive. This chapter talks a lot about the Chitravanu as well. It's one of those others, you can't really avoid the setting secrets here. It talks about the, the proxy's relationship with, with Baranu. Well, it's a very interesting thing that they bring up is that he considers her like a family member, like he has a deep familial love for her. Uh, and it's like the only person he calls Tia, which that, that little bit struck me pretty well when I read that. I thought that was a very nice touch. And his remorse over the purge has led him to take the Chitrabanu into his order and consider them a part of his beloved organization. And I think that's very cool. It talks a lot about his agendas, the willingness that the, of what they're going for. It talks about how he has loosened his anti-aberrant stance, how through his connection to Ranu, he realizes they're not all bad. And that is such a positive step forward for the setting. It gives hope to the setting of one of the most like hardest anti-aberrant, anti-Nova person has had his mind changed and his eyes opened up and that he's like, okay, we can work with the Novas. I'm like, okay, humanity's won. When I read that, I'm like, okay, all right. Give it a couple of years, humanity's one. If, if Norsa can get on board with Novas, then I don't think we have any problems. What do you guys think about the Norsa in this chapter? I thought this was a really strong chapter, especially presenting it from Del Fuego's perspective. He's a really interesting and central proxy. I think one thing to note that makes Norsa different from the ministry is that the ministry is really a branch of a government where Norsa is an extra national force that supports uh, multiple governments, as long as they are working for the greater good, they are very much a, a we're going to, we're going to support you. We're going to deal with problems for you, but you need to be doing the right things. And so it almost denationalizes them. They're not, they're not doing what they're doing for nationalism. They're doing it for the people and for a people that they are part of a family with. It presents them very much like a family, which I think is neat. If there's one drawback to this chapter in the people section, they only present one member who, which I think in a, an order that is so dominated by the proxy is, is like, I would have liked a few more perspectives, a few more, this is what other people are like in the order. But overall, I, I, I love this. I would very happily pick Norsa as one of my go-to orders, which was not the case before this book. Yeah, that's the only thing I have to say about it is I would play Norsa. I would play a Norsa campaign even after reading this chapter, and I never would have done so before. It just did not resonate with me the way it does after reading this chunk of text. So, 
Next up is Orgotech. Orgotech is the Metacorp based in the FSA, led by Prexy Alex Cassell. I see a, a couple of faces at that Prexy title, which I would love to share with you. And so we'll just, you'll just have to imagine what my co-hosts look like at this moment. It does say up front that Sci Orgotech is a separate but associated organization with Orgotech, the Metacorp. But I didn't feel like the chapter delivered on that. It, a lot of the chapter focuses on Cassell, focuses on Orgotech. When we look at the initiatives, it's all focused on what are Orgotech's initiatives, not what are Psy Orgotech's initiatives. And so that, that felt like I would have liked to know more about the Psy order and less about the company. We get a, a similar thing when we uh, look at their uh, members, the important people, uh, focuses on the companies that Orgotech members have created, not the people. And so I thought it was overly focused on being a, a Metacorp. I think this was probably also a hard chapter to write because Orgotech is a, a part of the FSA and they do present it as trying to change things from within. But the FSA are the baddies and Orgotech does to a certain extent participate in that system. And I, I, think, I think this was a chapter that needed a little bit more campaign advice, uh, a little bit more focus on Psy Orgotech to really make them an order that I would want to go to and, and play. That said, this is another one that ties the proxy, especially into the meta plot, talking about the things that he's investigating, about how he has figured out where the chromatics or how the chromatics may have gotten their technology, figuring out that things are not all as they seem. And so it does present Alex Cassell as someone that you could in a meta plot game go to and flip to the right side of things. And so like, to me, it felt like it was presenting them more as an NPC opportunity than, than really making them playable. What were your thoughts on Orchitech? There is a specific line where Elaine Castle is uh, said to notice a strange look in her husband's eyes and a way that he looks at her slightly murderously. And I don't remember the exact way that's worded, but it definitely made me creeped out when I read it. And I was like, Ooh, that's a really good line. And I have a guess that it's because he is being temporarily and occasionally possessed by a doyen. Ooh. But yeah, that is just my theory, not yeah. anything that's clear, but that's just- Yeah, they, they definitely- they take a very subtle touch with that plot hook, but it is a fascinating plot hook. I have my, I had a theory that I came up with that got smacked down on the discord by Ian pretty hard. <laughs> Not so much he was saying that it was wrong, but it was like, yeah, the books weren't really written it with, with each other in mind. And skip forward a few seconds if you don't want to hear anything about Anima. My theory that it was his mom, who we think is his mom in Anima, the Cassell from who was a Nova, who's doing like a, a Batman Beyond Joker thing to him. But I think related to that, I really liked the focus they put on Elaine. They talk about her quite a bit as a character, as a mover and a shaker in her own right. I really appreciated that because she's a fascinating character in her own right. In a chapter in order that's so dominated by Alex, I really like seeing the places where Elaine puts her hand and is able to, to shape things. Yep. The only thing I'm not a huge fan on is she's a talent. And I personally would have just made her an, a baseline. 
And I think it would have been awesome for her just to be a regular genius that is good at things. And not every genius has to be a talent for them to be capable of moving and shaking the world. Finally, we have the Upeo and Masho, which this is another like standout stellar chapter, in my opinion. It is talks about how the order was formed. It talks about the trials and travails of the Exodus and why they left and what happened during the leave, well, why they came back. I think we're running a little bit low on time here, so I can't get into the super detail, but I, I will just say that the campaign implied by this chapter, one of does this order stay together and does this order fight against itself? Does this, How does the schism in this order presented by what the proxy did and the choice that she made, how that plays out as a story is fascinating. I think that that is one of like the most really interesting implied campaigns in this book because they really do a good job of letting you know who Atuan is, why she did what she did, why she has done what she's done. And it's similar to the ministry of like, maybe she's a failed proxy. There's, that's definitely a perspective that you can take reading this book. Maybe she is not the right person to lead this order. They make a very good case for that in the, the factions who oppose her and the detail and the description that they give to the various factions within the order and where they sit on that core issue is really well done and it really paints a really interesting picture. So I think that campaign, if you like the Upeo and you like their style along with their powers and their abilities and everything that they can do, I think that that's a really well done campaign that you are given almost on a silver platter here with this book. They also give you the campaign of going and fighting aliens mm-hmm. um, because after the return, Peo Macho has put together a, like a military special forces group uh, because now they know that the chromatics kidnapped human teleporters and they need to go save them. That's awesome. Like there's a lot of, of really cool stuff. And going into this book, Peo Macho was my favorite Psy Order. Still my favorite Psy Order. This is an excellent chapter. The campaign section gives a lot of really great advice for how to run a game for teleporters, both the good and some of the challenges that you'll face. It presents paths for all of the Chama within the order, the different sub-organizations. If I were going to say there was one detriment, it would be that the really excellent focus on the conflict around the exile and return is almost too dominant. I would have liked maybe 25% less of that and a little bit more of what else is going on in the order. But that seems like the tyranny of word count may have taken that out. Josh, what are your thoughts on, on this order? So I love this book as a whole, but this is my favorite chapter. And I love the Upeo. I have from first edition onward. And I think this chapter just makes me love them even more. I like Ruan's world as a place for the teleporters to live. And I like Garden as an edge, which seems like a really weird edge to call out. But I like that sense of I've got a special place that I can go to and get away from everything. And what sort of stories that lets you potentially tell, maybe in a one-on-one game, maybe in a, a small setting as a small section of a bigger story. But I think it's really cool. 
moving on, chapter nine is new stuff about psi powers. It, it talks about how to use the aptitudes creatively, how to kind of step sideways within the modes. There's just a lot of neat ways of scaling up your psi effects, new psi edges, especially that interact with the new systems presented here. It makes your psi powers a little bit more flexible. All of this is optional. All of this is really cool. Uh, it gives you more powers. The coolest thing though, from my perspective for this chapter is it isn't just hey, let's talk about rules. But it presents diegetically how scions experience psi. And so getting that understanding of what, what psi is like, what the path of psi powers is like, is, is my favorite part of this chapter. I agree wholeheartedly. I think that almost pseudo-in-play description of what psi is like and how the aptitudes are different from one another. And I, I eat that sort of stuff up. I love that, like, what is this actually like and how do powers work in an in-place perspective? I love that. They did a really good job on that. And the, the, the rules are cool too. Yep. Aptitude shaping is just neat. So I'm glad they include that. I'm glad they have given you everything here if you want to use it. You like mage? It's a little magey. It's very magey. I'm wearing my mage shirt today. Ah. So there was a reason for that. Our final chapter is the technology chapter. Uh, this is a bunch of mostly biotech, but there is some hard tech in here and it is awesome. I think this is part, like in one chapter, this is kind of the old Trinity technology manual from first edition. It is just a list of order specific bits of tech, ships, guns, utility abilities, things that are really cool. Tech is a big part of sci-fi and this chapter fulfills that part of sci-fi and giving you really cool toys to play with. And they're not just cool toys. A lot of them have implications for settings. Like some of, there are multiple different ways of interstellar travel listed. There's like a tiny jump ship for the ISRA. They have interesting new, new Upeawa Macho technology that lets you teleport in interesting ways on a ship-based level. There are Vargs listed here. There is all sorts of the different type of very Aeon-specific technology and it's all really expansive. None of it's redundant to the core or any of the other books that they've come out with. It's all very interesting, very cool flash tech. It's a great addition to the book. The one question I have with this chapter is organizationally, because they do break everything down by psi order. So I'm not sure why they didn't just have a technology subheading within each of the psi order chapters and instead put it all here. Not really a complaint, just a, hmm, I wonder what the decision behind that was. So that is a developmental decision made for the entire line where they are trying to have all technology exist in its own chapter at, at some point in all of the books. That's the design goal. Well, that answers that question. Thank you, Josh. Yep. That little bit of inside insight for everyone. Uh, we don't have a lot of time. Any closing words for this very excellent book that we clearly all adore? It's a must have. I think if you're going to, if you're going to play this game, either as a story guide or as a player, this is a must-have book. I think the only caveat to that is you should definitely clear with your storyteller what sections, if you, if you want to play the, you can't read certain sections of the book, if that's your style of play, that is a conversation you need to have with your story guide because there's a lot of secrets in this book and it doesn't really segregate them out. I couldn't say it better. I think with that, we just have to remind you to make sure that you keep your arms around the Trinity Continuum.